south of the border, down Mexico way. That's where I fell in love when the stars above came out to play. And now as I wander. Hello there, all you expat wannabes. I'm Johnny Mueller, and you're listening to The Expat Files, Living in Latin America, the show that tells you just what it's like to live, work, play, and or retire down here in Latin America. It's a mix of the good, the bad, the ugly, and the great, and it's all right here, so let's get started. All right, time to register another complaint. You know, I get no satisfaction in traveling. I mean, going through airports, taking planes and all that. To tell you that it's getting worse and worse is nothing new. You don't want to hear it, right? But let's talk about baggage handlers for a second. You know, the last two times I took a long-distance trip, those baggage handlers actually cracked my luggage. You know, luggage is supposed to be pretty much indestructible, especially if you buy a decent brand like American Tourister or Samsonite. Plus, the decent brands give you guarantees for what that's worth. By the way, in another Lost in Translation story, I remember many years ago when an airline lost a piece of my Samsonite luggage. You know how that can be a nightmare. It ever happened to you? Well, you know, they don't lose it completely. You finally get it in a day or two. At least when they've lost my luggage, I think it's three times now, I always got it within a day or two. Delivered right to your doorstep or hotel room. Though you waste an hour and a half in baggage reclaim. Sort of hopeful, then pissed off, then dazed and confused. Because you got to sit there at the carousel, watching every last piece of luggage come off from your plane and whatever plane that's also assigned to that carousel. You have to wait till every last piece of luggage has rolled by and everyone's picked up their luggage. Though there still might be the odd two or three pieces just circling around and circling around. Hmm, does that mean the person never made it on the plane and therefore wasn't there to pick it up? Anyway, so you end up standing there like an idiot, twiddling your thumbs, watching two final pieces of luggage roll by, spinning round and round the carousel, and they're not yours. Only then can you go to the lost luggage claim, so you're stuck there an hour and a half. With, I should add, two or three other pissed-off people who also lost their luggage. Anyway, it seems like I'm complaining about lost luggage. I'm really not here. I'm complaining about how they handle your luggage. Because the last two long flights I've taken, they've broken my luggage. Or permanently damaged it anyway. And that's not supposed to happen. Luggage is supposed to be indestructible, right? Except for maybe the zippers. The zippers are always the weakest link. They get the most abuse. Tell me you haven't put undue force on your zippers. So, anyway. In the first case, my luggage was cracked right down the side. I mean cracked. Clear through and through. Luckily, and strangely enough, the zippers held so it didn't pop open. That would have been a disaster. Now, I'm on the lookout for that. I've seen other people's luggage pop open with stuff spilled out everywhere. Then what? So, years ago, to prevent that, I bought these luggage straps on Amazon. They're something like four for ten bucks. Ten bucks for peace of mind? That's a good deal. So far, so good. Oh, and I know what a lot of you frequent travelers are thinking right now. Why stow your luggage at all? Just to pack a carry-on piece of luggage, stow it above your head in the plane, then you've got an eye on it at all times. And carry a backpack too, because it's like having two pieces of luggage. Airlines don't like it much because people take advantage, but it's allowed. Well, that's what I almost always do, except when I'm going on a long trip for a month or more. Then I'm almost always stuck checking at least one piece of luggage. Simply because I hate wearing the same clothes over and over like a backpacker. 
So anyway, talking about that second to the last long trip I took where they cracked open my Samsonite suitcase. Well, Samsonite's a decent brand, and they actually have a guarantee saying they'll fix it. But believe me, it ain't worth it to even try, because you got to send it back. How easy is that? Plus, the shipping will cost you a fortune. Anyway, what got me started about even wanting to talk about this on the show is that the very last long trip I took, which was about two and a half months ago, my other piece of decent brand luggage, an American tourister, came rolling off the carousel with a wheel missing. Well, I should say not actually missing, just broken off to the point it was just flapping around like a broken wing on a bird. Still sort of attached in a very flimsy manner, held by a tiny piece of plastic that hadn't broken off yet. Now, in the moment, you don't know what to do because you haven't got any tools or any way to fix it. Though you're thinking, if I just had some duct tape, but they won't allow that, you know. I've actually had a small roll of duct tape and clear wrapping tape confiscated. On a previous flight, they won't let you take that stuff on board. You can imagine duct tape would really come in handy for broken wheels and screaming kids. Anyway, when I got it back to my place, I took my drill, put a few holes in the base, reattached the wheel in its proper place with a few stainless steel bolts, washers, and nuts. And now it's working fine, though it looks a little tacky. I suppose it'll hold up, but we'll see. Anyway, I took a picture of the repair, sent it to American Tourister, uploaded it on their website. By the way, I phoned up their customer service and was put on hold for quite a while. What else is new? Finally, uh, an English speaker answered with an Indian accent named Dejean Dejenya, something like that. He told me to just call him Dave. That <laughs> figures, huh? Anyway, I'm not expecting much in the way of results or satisfaction, but at least I got through. By the way, I've often wondered, if, let's say, an Indian guy in India phones up a customer service call center because he's got a problem with some product or other, does a corn-fed Midwestern All-American pick up on the other end? Or does some other Indian guy in a call center down the street in New Delhi pick up? Which brings us to another related topic. You know, it's been a really amazing thing and positive boon that internet merchants like eBay and Amazon will ship products to practically every country in Latin America. Except, of course, a few of the usual suspects like Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Hmm, the same three countries run by socialistic authoritarian dictators. Now, how'd that happen? Anyway, as far as buying stuff on the internet, like from Amazon, eBay, and other places, yep, they'll ship direct, or you can send it to your own mailbox in the States, and they'll forward your stuff, and you'll get it in a week or so. Pretty damn good turnaround, I'd say. Especially since when I first came down a couple of decades ago, there was no internet, no Amazon, no nothing. And if you were a gringo expat living in Latin America, the best you could hope for was a Christmas or birthday care package from your mother up in the States. Though someone making the trip from the States would have to bring it down. So anyway, with the advent of the internet and Amazon, Alibaba, which is huge down here, eBay, even Target and Sears, all of that convenience been a fantastic help to all of us expats and gringos living overseas. Though there are three potential downsides in getting any kind of merchandise that way. Number one, you'll have to pay extra for the shipping charge based on weight. No big deal if what you're receiving is just a couple pounds or less. But if it's something heavy, let's say it weighs 10 pounds, then you're going to pay at least four bucks a pound. So you have to decide if you're ordering from Target or Amazon or eBay, is it worth the extra 40 bucks or so? The second downside, if you're living overseas and you order from Amazon, let's say, 
if your product is worth over 100 or 200 bucks, depending on the country you're having it sent to, you'll be hit with import taxes, anywhere from 10 to 30% of the value of the object, again, depending on which country you're having it shipped to. Luckily, though, there are angles to get around that. I mentioned those in previous shows, so we won't go into it right now. Anyway, the third potential problem with ordering things from, let's say, Amazon and having them shipped to your chosen country in Latin America. If, when you receive your item, you find it's damaged, or maybe just not to your satisfaction, or, for example, in the case of the luggage damage I was talking about, well, you know, they'll want you to ship the damaged item back, which will sometimes cost you more than the value of the product itself. Even if it's got a 100% guarantee, they won't reimburse you for the shipping. You, the purchaser, are on the hook for that because they made their delivery to your Miami mailbox. It landed there safe and sound, so their job is done. By the way, with all the competition between mailbox companies now, some of them are offering free returns, that is free shipping back to the purchase point as a carrot for you to try their services. Though I see it's complicated. They've got all kinds of rules and time limit regulations. Aside from that, what about having to return an item to Amazon or whatever? The question is, how often might that happen? Well, thankfully, I'm a very good test case for that. I'd say I've ordered at least 200 items from Amazon in the past five or 10 years. And only three of those items came broken or damaged. In fact, one of them, it was a tiny MP3 player. When I opened the box, it was completely empty. Nothing was in it. Surely, someone with sticky fingers along the way lifted it. So, that very day, I went to Amazon Online using their customer service live chat box, which, by the way, ain't easy to find when you go to it on Amazon, which it seems is a way to discourage customers from using it. Anyway, I uploaded a photo of the empty box, and guess what? They sent me another. Problem solved. The second time I had a faulty product, a supplement I ordered came in a broken bottle. I went on the Amazon website again and through the customer service chat box, text back and forth with a guy who had a very long Indian name. Hmm, another big surprise. Let's call him Indian Dave number two. I uploaded a photo of the broken supplement bottle and they sent me a replacement. No problem. No return of the faulty item necessary. Well, I shouldn't say no problem because I still had to pay the shipping coming from my mailbox courier in Florida to Latin America. I got stuck with those charges. No one's going to reimburse me for that. It was something like under 10 bucks. The problem is, though, when it's a very big item, like a piece of luggage, you can't just take a photo and resolve it through customer service. You got to send the item back. And that's going to really cost you, so it ain't worth it. Oh, and another thing, I never tell any of the Indian Daves in the chat box that I'm in Latin America. I'm thinking because they might not honor the guarantee once it's been shipped once again beyond the point they originally dropped it off in Florida. So if you're a gringo or expat living in Latin America, you should keep all that in mind when you're ordering things online. By the way, I've ordered some very big stuff from Amazon. Some pretty heavy stuff weight-wise, too. Now, you might think it's nutty that I ordered a bathtub from Amazon and a digital piano that weighed 25 pounds and a bass guitar amp that weighed 50. But here's the thing. I waited for that special Christmas sale or offer they have at my mailbox right before Christmas. Every year at that time, they cut their shipping rates in half for just the month of December, you know, to spur more ordering, and it works. So instead of five bucks a pound, it's two and a half bucks a pound. Now, of course, not all mailbox companies will do a deal like that, but some of them will cut their rates way down 
up to 50% less if you order something that's over, let's say, 20 pounds. They announce those offers once in a while, and it could happen anytime. So depending on what mailbox company you use, there are certain angles you can play. Just order your heavy stuff when they're doing a special. That is, if you're not in a hurry to get them. Just inquire about special deals and rates. Because, you know, there are lots and lots of mostly Miami U.S. mailbox couriers. They're in heavy competition with each other, so they're always offering little deals. Like, for example, I just saw a mailbox courier company offer a 50% rate cut if you happen to be a university student. Well, you know what? That's an angle you can work if you know how to Photoshop things. <laughs> Even if you're a gray-haired old gringo or expat, because, you know, old people take university classes too. By the way, there are lots of free university courses online too. So what would stop a person from signing up online, printing out your inscription form, then bringing it into your mailbox courier office to get that student discount? So then am I a tecano, a cheapskate? Maybe. Speaking of discounts, you know I've got my March 2024 Expat Insider Seminar coming up. If you sign up before February 1st, which is about three weeks away, you can take full advantage of the early bird discounts. Do keep that in mind because on February 1st, we're back to the regular pricing. By the way, this show first goes out on January 12th, 2024, which means you've got about three weeks to sign up and get in on that deal. So just sign up before February 1st. Oh, and if you sign up for the three-payment plan method, just pay that first payment before February 1st and you get the discount. For all the seminar info, agenda, and sign-up details, go to expatplanb.com and click on the seminar link. All right, now we're going to talk about something very important, so pay attention. Maybe even take notes. Now, you've heard me say many, many times on this show that private medical care in Latin America is first-rate. You've also heard me mention how to find a first-rate physician, dentist, specialist, etc. You just don't throw a dart at the classified ads or look up a doc on the internet. There is a correct procedure to find a good one. You've heard me say you must check the diplomas of the doctors in their offices to see if they've studied abroad. You've heard me mention this many times. Why is that important? Well, you see, if a doctor in Latin America has studied in the USA or Europe or Brazil or Argentina, Chile, even Venezuela, yeah, even Venezuela. All right, let's stop there for a second. Just an aside here about medicine and doctors in Venezuela. That's one of the few industries in that country that has not crashed and burned. I've been there, I know. Wealthy and high-placed people from all over the world still fly into Venezuela to get medical treatments done. I know this might sound hard to believe, but they're cutting edge in medicine and technology in Venezuela. Though, once again, in the private sector only. We'll get deeper into that and why it's happening in an upcoming show. So stay tuned. Anyway, if you're in Latin America and you see diplomas on the walls in doctor's offices that say they studied in Europe, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, even Venezuela, Japan, Canada, whatever. Well, that's a very good qualifier, and I always look for that. Because only the top 5% of Latin American medical students get a chance to study outside the country. So you can be assured you're getting with the best and brightest. Simply because they have to be absolutely top-notch to be accepted into a medical school program or graduate studies, specialist, or fellowship program outside their own country. Great example is my own personal dentist in Guatemala, Dr. Alex. He went to dental school in Guatemala, was in the top 5% of his class, 
So he applied for an oral surgery residency in the United States, got accepted in a prestigious oral surgery program in Florida. In fact, when he graduated, they asked him to stay on as head of the department. He said, no, I want to go back to Guatemala. My family and friends are there, etc. So in the end, one can't be more trained up in his field than Dr. Alex. That said, when you're in Latin America looking for a physician or dentist, here are a few cautionary tips to look out for and why you should avoid national healthcare clinics and hospitals at all costs. Unless, of course, it's an actual emergency. Let's say you get in a car accident right outside of a national healthcare hospital. Well, they're good on trauma. That's about it. Otherwise, tell the ambulance driver you got private insurance and you want to go to a private hospital or clinic. By the way, on those diplomas, check out how long they did a residency or fellowship in another country. It's easy enough to fly to a week or two-week seminar. That's not enough. They have to have studied in a program outside their country for at least a year or two. You've also heard me mention many times that you should never be fooled into signing up for a national health care program as a gringo or expat thinking. That should get you through your Latin American sunset years quite adequately and on the cheap. Here's another warning, another very big problem that I've just been made aware of. The fact is, I just read a very revealing article that came out on January 5th, 2024, just a week or so ago. It's a long article. I'm going to paraphrase and take excerpts from it. It's written by an expat gringa with a master's degree in nursing from the U.S., an expat gringa who's been teaching for the last 10 years in one of Ecuador's largest medical schools. According to her and other older medical doctors I've spoken to here in Latin America, something quite troubling has happened in Latin American medical schools since the onset of the COVID-19 lockdowns. People aren't talking about it, but they should. So pay attention. Here's what you won't find out and no one wants to tell you. So here goes. It starts out, I'm an American nurse practitioner and I teach Ecuadorian medical students in Ecuador. The purpose of this article is to share some critical insider news. She says, I read medical texts and I studied in the real world before attending nursing school in the U.S. In the U.S., to get into medical school, you have to be a college graduate. Many have master's and PhDs before admission. The MCAT exam, the Medical College Admission Test, is a difficult exam. And the results, the resume, the list of courses completed and scores, personal essays, and multiple recommendations are the minimum requirements for a medical school admission in the States. In the U.S., rivalry to get into medical school is intense. She says, since I was tested and accepted in U.S. medical schools, I can say this is a lengthy process. I personally got accepted into five medical schools, but then something terrible happened. Both my parents had metastatic cancer and needed my help. The other problem was I was married to a man who would not support me through medical school. He refused to help me with the high cost of medical school, and he was not willing to move to where I was accepted. We divorced while I was caring for my dying parents. So I would have studied medicine if my parents had not needed me. No regrets except I couldn't muster the will to reapply after they died. After almost a four-year hiatus, I didn't have to drive to relearn physics, chemistry, calculus, anatomy, etc. I was spent. So I did the next best thing and became a nurse practitioner through my master's degree, teaching medical school students in Ecuador for the last 10 years. And here's what few people know. In Ecuador, as with the rest of Latin America, high school graduates can apply directly and be admitted into medical schools at 17 or 18 years old. Unlike in the U.S., they do not need a four-year degree or pre-med or pre-dent or whatever to get into medical or dental school. They get a four-year head start on Americans by being able to apply right after high school. 
though that does cause certain problems. For example, I'm certain all the students that are admitted live with their parents. They've never been out on their own living in the world as adults, going directly from high school to medical school. In other words, unlike American medical students who start medical school at around 22 years old, when you start at 17 or 18, like in Latin America, they are very immature. Also, in Latin American medical and dental schools, there is no central exam required like the MCAT or DENCAT, just a five-month qualification period, which is okay, except many legacy students whose parents are doctors or dentists or powerful parents who are upper class or politically connected are exempted from this five-month process. Legacy pupils in Latin America with powerful parents often lack any qualification at all. They're just accepted because of their parents' status. As for my medical students, she says, they're immature, and their parents will not accept that their coddling is why they're immature. I observe that a certain kind of Latin American mamacita coddling in the home is very dominant, and this coddling makes them much less creative and less self-sufficient, less self-reliant than American medical students. Additionally, she says no one in Ecuador and probably the rest of Latin America is taught critical thinking skills. In the States, critical thinking may be a lost art too, but before the internet, whole generations of us still relied on it. By the way, this is how Latin American medical school educations are structured. The study of medicine is divided into 10 cycles, roughly similar to long U.S. semesters. In the medical school in Ecuador I teach, my students pay $3,000 per cycle up from around 1500 just two years ago, before COVID. So add it up. That means the total cost for medical school, it's a private medical school called Catholic University, is about $30,000 total. That's the cost of about one year, sometimes even one semester, in the average American medical school. Then she says, here's my warning for gringos and expats for your safety. You, as a patient, you might receive both excellent and horrible advice from two different Latin American doctors. All right, me, Johnny, chiming in here. You know, I know many Latin American medical doctors and dentists, and they all tell me, no matter what medical or dental school they go to, they have to spend the last year, sometimes two, in the national healthcare system, doing the rounds and learning the way the hospital system works for basically minimum wage. That period of time is called their practica. And believe it or not, these young practitioners live at the hospital. They've got a little dorm there. They're on call 24 hours, the same as medical residents in the U.S. All right, back to the article. She says, here's a word about the Ecuadorian national healthcare system. She says, acute care for trauma is always available. However, routine care is often unavailable. She says, as for me, I qualify for the national healthcare system, but I also bought a private care plan called Humana, first dollar health insurance policy. The key is... There are no young, wet-behind-the-ears doctors in the private healthcare system. None are new and underqualified. And that's one of the keys, she says, to having good care. Don't select a new young doctor wet-behind-the-ears. Now, here's the real crazy part. She says, if a young doctor attends you, note if the following graduation years appear on his diploma. 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023, and 2024. She says, if you get one of those, remember to get a second opinion. Why? Because COVID ceased clinical studies and hospital rotations during medical school for two years. She says, I've seen for myself that these new fresh green doctors are unprepared and scary. My personal interns in their final year 
who will be unsupervised in four months, have few skills and poor work ethic. These young doctors were not able to attend their clinical studies or hospital rotations for two years or more during the COVID thing are unprepared. They are not adequately trained. They do not pass my standards. She said, crazier yet, I've tried to help the situation. I've tried to help them personally. I was not successful. Worse yet, she said, and one huge problem is that since COVID, in the last three years anyway, not a single new doctor in Ecuador learns from corpses. There are no cadaver studies, and that's essential. Now, I don't know if this was true up in the States with medical students, if they wouldn't let them touch cadavers because of COVID. But when you don't have a chance to work on cadavers, you lack basic lab and manual dexterity skills. There's no way to learn complicated anatomy without ever having dissected a corpse. She says, even me, when I did my family nurse practitioner degree up in the States, cadaver dissections were part of my curriculum. But not here for young doctors here in Ecuador. If your doctor is young, find out where and when they graduated. Case in point, one of my own national health care young doctors prescribed me blood pressure medicine without first examining my own blood pressure. I asked him to do it three times. No blood pressure check during a routine exam? Imagine that. She says, but the young doctor was punching away at things on his laptop. Oh, and as for me, I've allowed just one national health care doctor to actually touch me in five years. I save my own life all the time. <laughs> She says a $30 or $40 private pay, private clinic, private doctor visit is worth far more than you can imagine. She says it's practically guaranteed at private offices the doctors can practice better medicine. On top of that, they can prescribe medicines not available at affiliated national health care hospitals and clinics. Besides that, she says if you go to a private doctor, they'll spend much more time with you and will be able to inform you much better. In the end, she says, governments just do not know how to run a national health care system. Accounting and legal professionals run it with just one doctor on the board of directors of each hospital. The rest, legal professionals in bean counters. Imagine that, just one doctor on the board of directors of a whole hospital. She says she's seen the actual national health care protocols and they aren't truly medically motivated at all. It's all financial based on cost cutting. All right, there's more, but that's about the gist of it. And what's new and so very informative about this article is that who knew the COVID lockdowns had such an effect on new medical school graduates? Who knew they shut down the clinical studies, the labs, and quit using cadavers? Now we're all stuck living with that. Those secondary effects and consequences we never knew about because of the pandemic. Just because all those lying big pharma asswipes wanted to make a killing with their bonuses and stock options. Oh, and they did. And those shit for brains jerks like Soros, Bill Gates, and that incarnation of evil, Dr. Falsi. They're still pushing jabs and masks when all the evidence coming in now points to the fact that history will show that lockdowns, jabs, and masks were the 21st century's biggest stain on science. Big government and big pharma in cahoots and out of control. But you knew that already, right? By the way, how many jabs did you take? Better yet, how's your plan B coming? 
You've been listening to The Expat Files, living in Latin America. If you need some help with your own Plan B, we can schedule a one-on-one phone or Skype consult. Just send me an email, theexpatfiles at gmail.com. And if you want to get on the waiting list for my next week-long expat insider seminar in Central America, where you're guaranteed to get a two- to five-year head start on your Plan B, send me an email, theexpatfiles at gmail.com. Nos vemos.